Now we turn again this morning to 1 Thessalonians, where we are on Sunday mornings, and you'll find today's reading on page 987, 987 in the church uh, Bibles. Now we were on these verses last week, and we come back for a second time really to pick up verses 9 to 12 that we didn't look at last week. So let me read verses 1 and 2, and then 9 through 12. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you should do so more and more. And then verse 9, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. Well, let's pray as we begin. Father, these Christians in Thessalonica stumbled upon this great truth that they were not listening to the words of a man in Paul, but to the very words of God. And so they listened and obeyed. Father, we pray that we would be reminded again of that truth this morning, that we listen not to the words of a man who wrote these things down, but to God's inspired words, your words, food for our souls, to fill our hungry hearts, help us to listen and obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul shifts attack. He has been talking about authentic church and authentic ministry up to this point, but now he speaks about how God wants us to live as Christians. How God wants us to live, that's chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and then Andy Robertson will preach on the next section next week what we should believe in particular about the life to come and the return of Jesus and death and all that stuff. So, here in chapter 4, 1 through 12, he is on the Christian life. Now, what he says to the church in Thessalonica, he says to us with a straight line of application. There's no dotted line, there's no need to get into the church in Thessalonica and work out was what he was saying to them unique to them and not to us. Straight line application to us. If you're not a Christian listening here this morning or listening online, he is not speaking directly to you about how you should live. He's speaking to Christians. But I encourage you, if you're not a Christian or listening and you're not a Christian, to listen in to the Christian life and let me try to persuade you that it's a good life, a powerful life, and an attractive way to live. Now, in his description of the Christian life here in chapter 4, 1 through 12, Paul gives us a principle 
followed by three applications. The principle, verses 1 and 2, we looked at last week, but let me just state it again for you. Live in a way that pleases God, which means living by the Word of God. When Paul talks about walking, he means living the Christian life. They're synonyms. So live in a way that pleases God means living by the Word of God. That's the principle. And it's a, a great principle to be motivated to live in a way that gives God pleasure. How do you know what it is? You read his words. You can't have one without the other. You read his word, and sometimes it's hard. You've got to remember that doing what it says gives him pleasure. But if you want to please him and keep that word of God to one side, you'll not do it. The two go together. Live to please him, live by the word. Three applications, you'll see them on the sheet. Have a look at the service sheet. You'll see the structure of it. Our personal life, our church life, our everyday life. And when you take them together, personal life, church life, everyday life, you get to all of life. And that's the point. The Christian life is all of life. And uh, what that means is that Monday through Sunday, I am a Christian. I don't leave this building and I'm not a Christian anymore. You're a Christian all of life. And therefore, if you're a Christian all of life, your Christian faith impacts, suffuses, invades every area of life. That's what Paul is talking about here. So when you go to work tomorrow or study tomorrow, whatever it is you do tomorrow, you're no less a Christian. And your Christian life distinctiveness should flow through into how you are. When you're on your own in private, in the most personal aspects of life, your Christian life suffuses that. Personal life, church life, everyday life. Today, number two and number three, church life and everyday life. So firstly then, our church life loving unity. Let's read again verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, what Paul is talking about here is specific. He's talking about love for one another as Christians. How do we know? The phrase brotherly love means he is talking about our love for our fellow Christians. When you became a Christian, or if you're not a Christian and you become a Christian, two things happened or will happen. Number one, you were reconciled to God and brought back into a loving relationship with him. You love him, he loves you. Secondly, when you became or become a Christian, you are brought back into a relationship of love with the people sitting in church next to you this morning, fellow forgiven sinners. You love God and you love other Christians in a sense of a Christian definition of what love is. Or think of it like this, simply, when you became a Christian, you became part of God's family. And family language is used all throughout the New Testament. Brothers, sisters, God is our father, we are his children. You and I are brothers and sisters because we are in the same family. 
So Mary, you just caught my eye there because you moved. Nobody moved. Mary is my sister in the Lord Jesus. She is. I'm in the same family as her. She and I will spend all of eternity together. We have the same Father in heaven, the same Savior in Jesus. So the words brothers, sisters, they're not kind of Christian language. They are precise, clear, theological terms to describe who we are in a church family. Now here's the deal. If you are brothers and sisters in the Lord, you need to love one another. So we're about to have a number of weddings in the church family and Jen and Richards is coming up and uh, I always give advice now because I'm getting long in the tooth with lots of weddings as to what to encourage fathers of the bride not to say in wedding speeches. So here's a common line from the father and the bride, often an opening line just to get a laugh. They say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. And that leads invariably to stony silence in the room. Don't use it. Let me add to that, though. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives, and you cannot choose your brothers and sisters in the Lord. God has chosen them, and you are to love them. He has chosen them, and you are to love them. And if you think they are hard to love, some of them are. Just think how hard it is for them to love you. We are to love each other because it pleases God. And we are to love them because out of a thankful heart, God has rescued us and adopted us into the best family in the world, which is God. Love them because God has put his Holy Spirit within you so you can love them because you are going to spend an awful long time with them. All of eternity. Love one another. Now, if Paul is speaking about our love for our fellow believers, he does it in two contexts. Context number one, in the local church to which you go. And Christians are encouraged to be part of a local church. We all are part of this local church. Some of you are part of other local churches who are here visiting. But he's speaking about love for one another within that church that you are part of. And the other context he speaks about love for one another in is love for other Christians who are in other churches. How do we know he's speaking about these two contexts? Well, one, because he's writing to the church in Thessalonica about their love for one another in that church in that city. And he's also encouraging them to keep on loving, verse 10, all the brothers throughout Macedonia, kind of Edinburgh or the east of Scotland or Scotland. So, Love for one another as Christians in two contexts, within the church you're part of and within the wider church. Now, key question, what does love for one another uh, mean? What does it mean to love one another? Well, let me give you some principles then apply it. Three principles, they all begin with A. Authenticity, attitude, and action. Authenticity, love for one another is real. In other words, what I mean is that we can so easily cheapen as Christians words like grace and love and use them imprecisely, casually, flippantly, or worse, or translate them into attitudes and actions that are just denying what they truly mean. So, for example, our love for one another as Christians is not soft or sentimental. Well, it's not soft. It is sentimental. I think it, it is. It's intimate. It's sentimental. But what I mean is it, it's always serious. 
So love for one another is often corrected. Love for one another calls a spade a spade. It is not loving, for example, to condone something in a church that is wrong because it is the loving thing to do. Phrases that are often banded around, what unites us is greater than what divides us, or love conquers all, what do they mean? They must only have precise biblical meanings. So for example, is it unloving? What Paul has just said to these Christians in verses 3 to 8 about living lives of purity? Or is it deeply and profoundly loving? Is it unloving when the Apostle Paul in his letters refutes error, exposes false teaching? Is it unloving to say that to call sin good is wrong? Or is it profoundly loving and protecting and caring in the end? And you see, love for one another in a church is authentic. It teaches truth, it commends truth, it urges, admonishes, encourages, helps, is patient. I remember someone saying to me when I was training for ministry, is never seek to be popular, never seek to be unliked, just be real. Isn't that interesting? I think there's, a, there's a, an authenticity to Paul. Remember Paul at the end of his life was deserted by all, Come along on Sunday nights and listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians. And imagine, though, if we were sitting here and Paul had not written down what he wrote down. What a mercy, what a blessing he did. Authenticity in love. Secondly, attitude. How would you describe Paul's attitude to these Christians, this church in Thessalonica? Well, he's servant-hearted. He'll serve them with his whole life and energy. He's humbled. He looks to their interests, not his own. He'll suffer for their sake. He's prepared to suffer for them, with them. And he encourages them. He wants to see them grow. His letter is full of a spirit of encouragement that they grow in their faith. Authentic, loving, an attitude of servant-hearted, sacrificial, suffering, love. And always, always, always in the end, it spills over into action. Action. It's one thing to speak about loving one another. It is quite another to love them. Think of it like this in a marriage. Imagine if I said to my wife that I loved her, but I didn't love her. You know, when you say, I love you, I should say it more than I do. If there's no love behind that, there's no practical expression of that, it's empty words. And in the church, to say we love each other when we can't stand each other, or worse still, when we don't really care, is empty. I don't want to be part of a church like that, and thank God I'm not. Action means doing. Paul speaks about a labor of love. And think of Paul. He was right there in the thick of it in Thessalonica when the church was planted. It really, really got to Paul. He couldn't get back. It really got to him. He couldn't visit them. And so he sends Timothy. And Timothy comes back. And Paul's so encouraged. He writes to them. And he wants to see them. He wants to be up to his neck in their life. It means serving one another practically. Let me be really practical here in church. 
It means sharing bearing the load with others, looking to their interest, perhaps to take something of the burden off them. So, a good example of that here is church out of a van on a Sunday morning, church back in a van on a Sunday night. If you see people carrying all these cases of equipment, just lift one of them and carry it into a van. It's a tiny thing. It's just practical stuff. It's kind of grafting together. More importantly, though, it is spiritual care. How do we love one another spiritually in a church of 350-odd people? Apparently, that's what we are. Let's say that's true, 350 people. That means 350 people who need love. And that means 350 people whose lives are not sorted, whose lives are not free of troubles and battles and scars and tears. I'm yet to meet one. 350 people who need love. How do you love 350 people spiritually on the ground? You need a network of loving relationships off the church. Now, I love you all, but I can't love you all in the sense of doing it practically all the time. Our elders love you all, but they can't do it practically all the time. Small groups, networks, one-on-ones, genuine stuff, open homes, coffees, conversation, emails, texts, Facebook, all of it, whatever it is, genuine love for one another, servant-hearted, sacrificial, suffering love to see each other standing fast and growing in our faith. That's when, across a church family, you raise the temperature of love. And when you raise the temperature of love, you suppress the temperature of disunity. When you raise the temperature of love, you raise the temperature of evangelism. When you raise the temperature of love all over the church, people feel encouraged that they are standing fast in the Lord. Now, that's right, I think. I, for my sins, am still a member of the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland. I'm not sure it really is a sin. The reason I'm still a member is the exams were so horrific that I can't bring myself to resign. And they don't charge me a membership fee because I'm a minister. They don't know what to do with me. Um, The Ethics Committee of the Institute of Chartered Accountants has just written a very powerful vision for making the accountancy profession in Scotland ethical. It's a report called The Power of One. And the point is, if you are a member of the Institute of Chartered Accounts, how do you ensure your profession is ethical? Answer, you do. The power of one. In everybody's hands, there is the responsibility and opportunity to contribute ethically to their profession. In everybody's hands, in a church, there is the responsibility and the opportunity to love one another. The power of of one. Now, if that's what it looks like in a local church, what does it look like in the second context of uh, the wider Christian relationships we have, say, to other churches in the city, or to other Christians in Edinburgh, or to other churches in Scotland? What does it look like to love one another? Let me answer first by saying what it doesn't look like. And this needs, I think, to be said. It doesn't issue in the attitude that affirms what is wrong or worse. We all love the Lord, so it's okay. 
we all love the Lord, so I'll say nothing. That's a little bit like saying, in our own little patch, all roads will lead to God in the end. It's just not true. So when a, a major denomination goes into meltdown, and just let me say, many of you will have seen the news yesterday about the next step in the Church of Scotland. Having left that as a minister in a church, I don't feel one ounce of, in a sense, absence from it or not feeling the pain of it anymore. It's just the same as it always was. But when a church makes such radical steps and changes its laws on marriage or offers online baptisms or online communions, all that kind of stuff, and churches within a structure say nothing or do nothing and are silent, acquiesce, or more often complicit, it is just not true that we all love the Lord in the end and it will be okay. It's not what Paul would say. What would Paul say? Paul would say stuff like, be very careful. Or he would say, have nothing at all to do with them. Or when a TV evangelist comes to town, as they are doing in Edinburgh, what do we say? Nothing? Somebody should answer the phone. What should we say when that happens in the city? Nothing because it's a loving thing to do. No, it's not loving. It's not loving to say nothing. It's loving to say something. How you do it, how you say it, well, that's a different story. But saying nothing is worse. So that's not what loving other Christians in a country means. It doesn't mean cheapening love. What does it mean? What does it mean in the city, in Edinburgh, Scotland, for example, to love one another in the way Paul commends the Thessalonians for and encourages them to do so more and more? Now, in many ways, we find ourselves in an identical situation to the Thessalonian church in the first century. Think of them there in Thessalonica. We live, they live, in a secular city, in a secular nation, just the same. The structures around them and the structures around us of institutional religion have become worldly, just like them, just like us. It's exactly the same thing. And they've become worldly. And over time, and it'll be a long time because they're so wealthy, they will wither and die. They will wither and die. How do you know? Because the Bible says they will. God will judge. God will act. They will die. And the pressure or the opposition to the true church will be strong, and it will come in part, often in a large part, from inside the visible church against the real church. Now, why is this positive? Well, for a number of reasons. I think it's much better that we live in Scotland today than 30 years ago. 30 years ago, in a sense, was the start of this rapid decline away from Christian orthodoxy in our nation and in the national church. We're now at the bottom of the barrel. That's a much better time to live. So I came to St. Catherine's as a church 
not at the top of the curve of growth. I came at a different time, and the church has vitality in life when that happens. It's much better to live as a Christian in Scotland today than it was 30 years ago because there are green shoots. There is genuine gospel partnership in this city. There is genuine vision for church planting, for training, for growing gospel churches. But green shoots, when they sprout through the ground, are awfully fragile. So my children, we have raised vegetable beds in our garden. I don't really know what they're for. I think they're for growing vegetables. And my children have brought these big bags of compost. You cut little square holes in them and you plant tomato plants. And they're ve- particularly our youngest one is very meticulous and very caring and very loving of these little tiny green shoots. He's even put a mesh around them to protect them from the birds. And in Scotland today, there is reformation in the church. There is partnership between church leaders and churches. There is gospel vision. You heard a little bit from Andy about church planting vision. There is real partnership in training. But green shoots are very fragile. How do you ensure that these green shoots flourish? Christian leaders, Christian churches, Christians in churches should love one another. Not in the cheapening form of love that passes over that which is wrong, but where there is genuine partnership, there needs to be servant-heartedness, sacrificial suffering for the sake of the other. So, for example, in a church like Chalmers, we need to keep on, keep on, never set this apart, keep on training and sending people out into this country. It's a great thing Chalmers does. I want to encourage you in doing that. I want to encourage you that we need to keep on doing that. One of the great encouragements to me is that Andy is going to be a free church minister. Not so much that. I think that's great. But the fact that it doesn't bother us at all. We're an independent church. Maybe you didn't notice that. We are. We'll train people for the free church. We'll train people for independent churches. And it never crosses our elders' mind or your mind or his mind that that shouldn't happen. That is a sign of genuine gospel partnership, real genuine love for one another. Those of you who give to the Bonner Trust, as many of you do, much of that money is going into other groups in this context. Why sacrificial, servant-hearted love for others? In that real sense, in that real sense. And uh, Paul says to them in verses 9 and 10, you are doing this. And whenever he says, Paul, you're doing this really well, but do it more and more. Never rest on your laurels. So church with a heart to train, the Chalmers has, and I thank God for that. That's loving one another wide in this wide context. Do it more and more and more. And as your minister, I want you to hear Paul's words as an encouragement. You are loving one another within this family. Not perfectly. But there is genuine love and care. There is. There is. But keep on. And within the wider context in Scotland, there is genuine servant-heartedness and desire to see gospel growth flourish but do it more and more. Now, here is the moment you all wake up. Okay? And the moth-discovered screen is going to help you. 
green. Why is it green after yesterday? <laughs> it's been green and purple. Green is the Hibs home strip, purple is the Hibs away strip. Why, 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 why love each other in this church? Why do it? Why love one another in a country where the green shoots are forming? Why is it that ministers in this city, when they are seeking to train and plant, need to love each other, serve each other, sacrifice for each other? Why is it that today we should relish, well, it's been delayed by a week, it should have been today, Charlotte Chapel opening up their new building on Shandwick Place. I relish that. I love to see that. That's great when we do. Why is it so important? Answer in five letters, one word, unity. Unity, unity, unity in a church is so precious. Unity comes from love for one another, bearing with one another, encouraging one another, serving one another, sacrificing for one another. Unity, unity. Church planting, vision for Scotland will never flourish unless there is united thinking across the country and united relishing at what is happening. Unity is so precious. And one of the devil's chief tactics to fight against unity is to make Christians not love each other. Remember the power of one. If you are coming along to Chalmers and you're not loving your brothers and sisters in the Christ, you are not contributing to unity in the church. Now, second, our everyday life, quiet industry, verses 11 and 12. Let's read these verses again. I'll read them from the end of verse 10. It's a kind of link phrase. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to love one another and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Some of you have tea towels in your house with Bible verses on them. I haven't seen them. I guess they're in the drawer when I come and visit. Some of you have uh, little pictures on the walls of your kitchen with Bible verses. I bet you don't have this verse on it, though. What a letdown this verse is. Just kind of get your head down, do your stuff, be a consistent Christian all of your life, work well, walk before the eyes of the world as a Christian. That's not going to sell tea towels, but it sells the gospel very powerfully. Now, probably Paul is addressing something specific that happened in the church in Thessalonica, something that Timothy had told him about after his visit. Probably, and we know this from the end of the letter and also the second letter to the Thessalonians, probably some of the Christians in Thessalonica, for the wrong reasons, had given up their daily work, their day jobs, and were depending on others, presumably the rest of the church, to look after them. Uh, that might be reading between the lines, but I think the other contexts suggest that. Why would they give up their day jobs and just uh, be part of the church life and therefore depend on others financially, materially, and so forth. Well, lots of reasons they might. Maybe they were so taken with life in the church that they wanted to spend all their time there. Maybe that's a good thing. 20 services a week. Maybe, and this is more plausible, they thought the Lord Jesus was about to return and they wanted to, to invest in gospel witness before he did. Or maybe they were just plain lazy and were sponging off everybody else. I'm quite persuaded by that possibility. And, and anyone, whatever happens, some people in that church were, were getting without giving, taking without serving. And Paul says to them, no, 
you've got to carry on with your day job, keep working, keep your uh, contributing, and that includes financially to the life of the church, the witness of the wider church. Now, that may be specific here, but what's the bigger principle here? The bigger principle is the encouragement to Christians and to the Christians in the church in Thessalonica and to the Christians here in Chalmers to see our Christian faith extending into our everyday life. It is a great picture Paul paints. Christians getting their heads down, doing their jobs, working hard, leading a quiet life, getting on with their everyday life. And that is living in a way that pleases God. Here's a couple of Bible texts that help. Jeremiah 29. This is the prophet writing to the exiles in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts to all the exiles, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, seek the welfare of the city, for I have sent you into exile. Or 1 Peter 2 and 10, beloved, I urge you as exiles in the world, live such good lives among them. Walk before their eyes as Christians so that when they speak about you or against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, what is the point of it? What is the point of you as a Christian going to work every day? What is the point of you as a Christian being a good neighbor on your street? When I walk down the street, Middleby Street, where we live, and I see one of our neighbors, I have a kind of tendency in my heart to want to cross the street to the side that they are not on, so I can get home to my little burrow. My wife, when she sees our neighbors on the street, if she is on the wrong side, crosses to the side they are on. Or if she spots anyone behind a hedge or in the garden, she's straight in there, usually with a jar of jam. Why is it as Christians we should look over the hedge to the people who live next to us? Why is it as Christians in the places that we work, should we do a good job, get our heads down, be a good maths teacher, a good joiner, a good doctor, whatever it is, and tell them we're Christians? You've got to do that. You've got to come clean about your faith. Let your light shine before men. You've got to connect it to Jesus in some way. That sounds awfully hard. Pray that tomorrow... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you will have an opportunity to connect who you are to Jesus. Just tell them you're a Christian. Why do we do this? So that, in Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, you may walk properly before them. Live before their eyes as Christians. If we are not out there in the world, how will people encounter Jesus. And one of the things that Andy will be looking to encourage his church planting team in Dundee, if he leads this church into Charleston, is that they grow and live in Charleston. That's a very specific and powerful illustration of this. How do people come to know the Lord Jesus if God's people are out there in the world walking before their eyes. Now, if you are retired, many of us here are retired, there are numerous other contexts that we can do this in. Many of you live in places surrounded by other people in close communities. Walk before them in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. What does it involve? Consistency, 
faith that pervades every part of life Monday as much as Sunday. At the basic level, it is letting the people you work with know you're a Christian. If you've not done that, do it this week. It means not crossing the road to get to the other side when you see your neighbors. It means going to find a pot of jam or something like that. That's just the street we live on. They like jam. Walk before their eyes. Notice it's walk, not run. It's true, isn't it, in life? It's much more about walking than running. You don't kind of run the Christian life on Monday at work, do you? You walk it slowly, and it's lifetime witness. Consistency and distinctiveness, be different. So as you young doctors here get more senior, and you exercise authority over those under you, do it in a Christian way. If you are under authority at work, work hard, get your head down, earn respect, do not seek advance up the corporate ladder or whatever ladder it is you seek advance up by setting aside your principles to do so. Be distinctive, be different. You see what Paul is saying as he writes to this little church in Thessalonica, this secular city, he's saying that be real, be loving, love one another, love the brothers and sisters in Macedonia and Achaia, build partnership, build strategy, build vision, plant churches, and in the city where you work, in the marketplace, wherever it is, just live consistently, walk before their eyes with your neighbors. Why? Because it pleases God. And you know when something pleases God, at the same time it builds the kingdom of God and furthers the gospel of God. So living in a way that pleases God, personal life, church life, everyday life. Let me finish by returning to that analogy of the power of one. This is you, as a Christian. You live your life in a way that pleases God, your Father. You know what that means. It means living by his words, his word. And so as a Christian, you are careful in your personal life, verses 4 through 8. You are aware of the temptation, and you pray every day for the Lord's protection and help. We preached on that last Sunday, and it's striking. I've had a lot of correspondence from you. And the thing that you got, I think, perhaps because I got it, is that there is none of us in a church that is free from these battles of the flesh. The liberty that comes from that collective knowledge. Which is why, verses 9 and 10, we need to love each other, to build each other up, to encourage each other, to admonish each other, to be patient, to give each other a, a kind of kick up the backside from time to time when we are idle or lazy, to care for each other. Authenticity, attitude, action on the ground. The power of one. Are you loving one another? Are you building, nurturing, praying for these green shoots to grow? One practical way to do that is get your praying teeth into Charleston. Ah, hardly any Christians there. Next time you're up in Dundee, why don't you go and drive through it? Just drive through it. Let God inspire you to pray power of one. 
power of one. Power of one in your school tomorrow or at uni. The power of one when you play your next medal in the golf course. The power of one when the sun shines and you're out cutting your grass. Look over the hedge, talk to your neighbours. Be like a stick of Edinburgh rock. Remember that, sweetie? Remember that? Guys in the band are smiling. They've heard this twice. Well done for smiling a second time. You know Edinburgh Rock? When you, you won't remember it. It's probably not PC now to have sugar sweeties like that. But Edinburgh Rock, when you cut it, there's letters that run right through from the beginning to the end. So when you cut your life, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you see these same letters. Walk with Jesus before their eyes. Do it every day till God calls you home. The power of one, the power of one. That's what you are doing, Chalmers. I love you. That's what you are doing. Keep doing it more and more. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would seal these very practical principles deep into our minds and hearts. Thank you for the practical teaching of God's word. Help us to learn what Christian love is and what it's not. Help us to do it more and more authentically, attitude-wise, and practically. And help us, Lord, to get our heads down Monday through Saturday, steady graft, walking before the eyes of the world. And we pray all that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.